0: Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in 2018.
1: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Daniel James Brown's bestseller, The Boys in the Boat, is a story about beating the odds and finding hope in the most desperate of times. The improbable, intimate account of how uh, nine working class boys from the American West showed the world of the 1936 Olympics in Berlin what true grit really meant. The Boys in the Boat was selected for this year's USU Common Literature Experience for incoming students and the community. Dan James Brown is author previously of The Indifferent Stars Above and Under a Flaming Sky. And uh, The Boys in the Boat was the New York Times' uh, number one uh, bestseller. Um, he's taught writing at San Jose uh, University and uh, Stanford University and lives outside Seattle. Dan James Brown, uh, th- welcome to the program. Hi. Hi. Thanks for uh, joining us. You've written in a uh, more extensive biography that uh, when you're not writing, you're likely to be birding, gardening, fly fishing, reading American history, or chasing bears away from the beehives. Sounds like quite the life.
2: Yeah, yeah it, it is a good life. I'm afraid I have no more beehives. The uh, the bears got the last of them last um, last spring. So. The, the,
1: the bears got them. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, very interesting, previous books, In Different Stars Above, that's The the Donner Party, I believe?
2: yes uh, it was as uh, I focused on uh, one particular young woman in the Donner party, a woman who was only twenty one years old and was actually the the trip out west was basically her honeymoon and um, she was one of um, several young people that tried to hike out of the Sierra nevada to um to get word of what was happening up up in the mountains and Actually, she survived that and, and was the first person to get out and, and tell the outside world what was happening.
1: Hmm. And uh, Under a Flaming Sky, an extraordinary uh, account, true story account of a, a two forest fires that converged on a Minnesota, was it, town?
2: Yeah, a little town in Minnesota called Hinkley. Um, it actually revolves around um, my great-grandfather and my uh, grandfather. Uh, my great-grandfather was a mill hand working in Hinkley um, when these two fires converged on the town, and um, and he actually died trying to fight the fire. But um, they tried to evacuate the town. There were a couple of trains in town that morning, and so they loaded uh, as many people as they could onto these uh, trains and tried to back them out of town. And um, the town, uh, the train, rather than my great grandmother and her son, my grandfather, were on. Uh, actually caught fire on the way out of town and about they got about five miles or so outside of town and the, the, the train was entirely on fire at that point and so they all piled off the train and actually submerged themselves in a swamp and survived the fire that way but it's a story about it was really a, an absolutely horrific event but there were a lot of uh, very heroic um, actions that, that that people took that day and um, and so it was kind of a, a story I had grown up with and, and known all my life and never seen written up. So that was actually my first book.
1: Yeah, just uh, very timely, unfortunately, that, you know, wildfires, uh, uh, yeah. raging California, for example.
2: Yes, indeed. In fact, the air here in Seattle this morning is grimy and gray from, from the fires. Um, and it, it seems to be happening every summer now. So.
1: And I was just reading this morning there's a, a firefighter, with ties to Logan here, who uh, who died in a, one of the fires out in California oh, recently.
2: Yeah, uh, I saw that the firefighter had died. I didn't know he was tied to Logan, yeah, Utah. Yeah. Uh,
1: so I want to get into Boys in the Boat. Obviously, uh, this th- this has um, uh, it's a very inspiring story. A lot of lessons here. Uh, there's an obvious obvious reasons why it was selected for incoming students and lessons they can learn, and the community as well um it's uh the inspiration for a documentary film the boys of 36 which aired on uh, pbs before we get into the story i wonder uh, uh did you envision that this would uh, would hit so big and resonate uh so widely
2: <laughs> you know i think you never know with with a book of course when any anytime you publish a book and put it out there you you can never be sure what's going to happen in terms of reader response but um we actually uh had pretty good feeling about this book um Actually, I had a good feeling about it from the time that I met Joe Ransom and started to to research this story. Um, but when I had developed the book proposal and, and um, we put it out to the publishers in New York, there was overwhelming interest um, instantaneously. So we knew that publishers liked the story a lot, liked the book. Um, and then... Um, when the book was actually published, it, it got kind of a slow start. Actually, we didn't have a New York Times review or any really major uh, national PR, so it it became sort of a word of mouth book. And um, in some ways, that's the best kind of book because it it climbed onto the New York Times bestseller list mostly by people talking to other people about it, and um, and because it was a word of mouth book, it it then stayed on the list for. For over two years, hmm. so um, so I would say that um, I was very optimistic about the book right from right from the beginning. But but as I say, you, you can never be sure. Hmm.
1: Uh, tell me the story about how you came to meet uh, Joe Rance. If people haven't read the book, Joe Rantz, uh, I guess the central figure, one of the yeah. key uh, boys in the boat. There, uh, this this uh, team that uh, of of rough Westerners who beat elite teams in the East and went on to win gold at the 1936 Olympics. How did you come to meet Joe?
2: It was actually pretty much just happenstance. Um, we, were, we were having a homeowner's association meeting at my house here, and um, after the meeting, this this woman I knew only as Judy uh, at the time came up to me and she said um, she had heard that I was a writer and um, she was actually reading uh, Under a Flaming Sky to her father, and her father was living at her house under hospice care. he was in the last couple months of his life. But he was enjoying that book, and so he wanted to meet me. So Judy asked if I'd come down and meet her father, and I, I said, sure, I'd be glad to. So I think it was the next day I went down, and I and I met this elderly gentleman, Joe, um, And he began to talk about, well, first about his experiences growing up during the Great Depression, and that in itself really affected me. But then he just started to talk about this experience of starting to, uh, of going to the University of Washington as a freshman and getting involved with rowing and uh, how he and uh, his crewmates over the course of three years came together and started to everybody's surprise, beating the best crews in the world and went on ultimately to row for a gold medal against a German boat uh, at the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. And (laughs) as Joe was telling me this story, I just was, you know, my mouth dropped open. It was so interesting. And and the way he was telling it was so compelling that um, I just right there, that very usually I'm very picky about book topics but I just flat out I said Joe can I write a book about your life (laughs) and he said no uh, I don't want you to write a book about me or my life Um, but he said you could write a book about the boat and I didn't know what he meant at first Then I realized what he meant was it had to be about all of them, the whole crew what all of them had done together and so I said that's what I would try to do and uh I set out on what turned out to be about a four-year uh, research and writing project that eventually uh, eventually turned into The Boys in the Boat.
1: You, uh, I guess you interviewed him a lot before his death?
2: Yeah, so, um, so Joe, lived, um, Joe lived only about two and a half months after I first met him, and I spent a lot of time with him during that period. Um, but then even after he passed away, his daughter Judy, who had introduced us, She had spent the previous, I don't know, five or six years sitting with her father with a notepad, taking notes, collecting stories, uh, collecting news clippings, collecting photographs. So even after Joe passed away, um, Judy had all these notes and boxes of material with which to work. So that really became sort of the nucleus of the book. And then Judy, um, these families all became very close back in the 30s and have remained close. So Judy introduced me to the family members of all the other eight guys in the boat. And, um, and so we started interviewing them. And, um, and that was enormously helpful. All the families um, very much wanted this story told. And, and so all of them began to come to me with letters and diaries and photographs and so forth so it became a huge collective effort and um and and their participation was was absolutely essential
1: so it's i mean it's an extraordinary story it's uh, you know it's good versus evil it's uh, there's a love story there there's a lot of elements here but i wonder uh, what did you you came to you first were confused, what did uh, Joe Rance mean about the boat? It wasn't the so much the physical well, boat, although that's included. But I guess it's it's the camaraderie, the, the trust, the bond. There's an incredible bond, it seems like, that was formed here with this crew.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, as Joe was talking to me that first day and in subsequent days, whenever he'd start talking about the other guys he'd rode with, he would tear up. And, um, and you could see how much um, how much affection he had for these other fellows and how close they had become and what, you know, and what that had meant to them back in the middle of the depression to, to have this experience. And, and so it, that really, I mean, that's also sort of the essence of crew is, as a sport is um, you have to, everybody in the boat basically has to become part of one single larger thing. And, and so you, you grow close, I think, on any sort of team. You, if it's a successful team, you grow close to the other members. But in rowing, it's just the most fundamental thing of all about the sport. You absolutely have to be watching out for each other at every single moment. And so um, that was very moving, as I interviewed the last couple of these fellows who were still alive, to see how, how deeply attached they were to each other. And This is after 70 years, um, for the rest of their lives, after 1936, they were close. They got together uh, every, you know, several times every year. Family picnics, uh, swim parties. They would have every year. They would have a annual reunion row when they could get out in Lake Washington and get the old boat out and and row together until, gosh, I don't remember the last year they rowed, but they were. Um, they were practically in wheelchairs at that point. They had to be helped in and out of the boat, so <laughs> so it was a lifetime a lifetime commitment to one another. <laughs>
1: uh, and I'll have you tell us the extraordinary story um, of of the uh, nineteen thirty six Olympics and and the the run up to that. Uh, they not only had to defeat uh, the German team at the Olympics, but they had to overcome the elite Eastern teams. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to have you tell me a bit of the story of Joe Rance, Is it's an extraordinary story, um, yeah. including being abandoned by his family. And that that created Indeed. issues. Uh, and you have said, you've written that uh, you feel like uh, finding rowing saved Joe's life. Uh, we'll talk about that and other, other things when we come
0: back. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from listeners like you and Golden West Credit Union, dedicated to providing Utah families with customizable options on home equity loans. Available online or inside any USU Credit Union or Golden West branch from Logan to St. George. Details at usucu.org. And Spirit Goat Soap, celebrating summer with a variety of gift sets made with handcrafted soaps, balms, and bath products, with options for all skin types, including sensitive skin. Located at 28 Federal Avenue in Logan. Information at spiritgoat.com. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in 2018. (music)
1: Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're pleased to have Daniel James Brown with us. His bestseller, The Boys in the Boat, was selected for this year's USU Common Literature Experience for incoming students and the community. And we have Daniel James Brown for the hour today. So Daniel James Brown, um, Joe Rance's story is extraordinary. Some of these things you couldn't make up, or if you did, you'd you'd, you know, you'd be laughed off the page. Um, <laughs> tell us a little bit about this. This is, I guess, growing up, leading up to... Uh, the depression, um, you know, hard scrabble uh, life. Uh, tell us a little bit about Joe Rance
2: and his growing up years. Yeah, so actually, that was actually the the first day I met Joe. This was the first thing he talked about. Um, Joe's Joe's mom had had died when he was uh, three or four, and his father had um, had remarried a quite a young woman, um, and. Um, and so they, and they sort of uh, ambled around the West. Uh, they lived for a time in a mining camp in Utah and um, wound up uh, eventually um, buying uh, what they used to call a stump farm out on the Olympic Peninsula here in Washington State. And uh, things were very hard for them, and, and, uh, and Joe and his stepmother um, never uh, really got along very well. Um and a number of times she she threw him out of the house, but there came a day um in nineteen twenty nine when uh, Joe was fourteen, I believe, um, right at the beginning of the depression they were they were having a particularly hard time um, the family making a go of it out and out on the peninsula and Joe came home from school one day and um, and discovered that the family car was in the front yard, and and there was all their possessions, their furniture was tied on the top of the car, and the car was packed full of stuff, and all Joe's younger half-siblings were in the car. And uh, and Joe said, well, where are we going? And his father said, well, I'm not sure, but um, Dula, this is the stepmother, uh, Dula can't here and we can't stay here any longer, and and Joe said again, "Well, where are we going?" And his father said, "Well, actually, Joe, you're not going anywhere. You're going to have to stay here. Lula doesn't want you to come with us." So and they drove away, hmm. and they so they left Joe. The house they were living in was only half constructed, um, and they left Joe uh, alone in this half-built house out in the woods on the Olympic Peninsula. And disappeared, and so Joe had to literally forage in the woods for berries and mushrooms, and used to poach salmon out of the Dungeness River, and started just sort of having to do whatever he had to do to stay alive. And for a number of years, that's the way he lived, um, just entirely on his own, um, trying to figure out a way to survive. And um, during that time, he fell in love with. He did keep manage. He did manage to keep going to school, and he fell in love with Joyce, who he eventually married. And Joyce was really the only presence in his life that was helpful at that point. Mm. Um, but that's pretty much the state he was in when um, he showed up at the University of Washington as a freshman and uh, and wanted to enroll. He he spent a summer. Uh, we spent a number of summers actually doing hard labor out on the peninsula. But he had saved up a little bit of money, and then he moved in with his brother, who was living in Seattle at that point, and uh, began to attend the University of Washington.
1: That's an um, that's an extraordinary goal for someone in his uh, <laughs> position, right?
2: It is, and you know, I mean, Joe. Joe was an amazing guy. Um, he came to the point where he realized that if he was going to make it, he was going to have to make it on his own. And so he, um, so he he took this big chance, and it was it was it was a remarkable step for him to take. It wasn't that common for farm kids uh, out on the peninsula to come to the university at all, and he didn't have the means to get through maybe more than a semester or so at the university when he started. It was really only when uh, he got onto the rowing team that um, if you were on the rowing team, there were no athletic scholarships, at least for rowers in those days. But if you got onto the rowing team, as long as you could stay on the rowing team, the university would give you a part-time job. Um, So Joe desperately had to get on that team, and he had to stay on it. And uh, and so that was a huge part of his motivation. Was he wanted to stay at the university? He wanted to become an engineer, and he wanted to marry Joyce and to do all that. Rowing really was the, the ticket. He he, uh, he needed it as a way of staying there.
1: I want to read just this, uh, this sentence from the book. Um... You're right that uh, when he was abandoned, he promised himself he'd never depend on anyone else, not even on Joyce for his happiness or his sense of who he, who he was. Uh, that, I could see, would present maybe some problems in the marriage, but also some problems in, in rowing, because you, you, trust and dependence on each other is a central part of it.
2: Exactly, and that was when Joe, uh, when Joe did start um, to row, He was he was naturally very athletic. He was tall. He was strong. He he had spent years out in the peninsula, you know, cutting hay and digging ditches and cutting down trees. Huge, strong, fit young man. Um, But he had a problem as a rower. As talented as he was, um, he was very erratic, and he would often try to row the boat basically all by himself because he believed, based on his experience that he had to do everything for himself. And it's, that's exactly right. The one thing that doesn't work in a, in a boat, when you, in a crew, is somebody trying to do it all by himself. You have, to, you have to trust everybody else in the boat to be pulling their weight. You have to fit into the, the rhythm at which they're rowing. Um, it's all about cooperation and pulling together. And so for the first couple of years that Joe was rowing, as I say, he was very talented and very strong, Uh, but he really had a hard time fitting in at first, and it wasn't until uh, the coach managed to find the right combination of boys, basically boys who all trusted each other. And by then Joe had gotten to know uh, most of the guys in the boat he he wound up in. And and so that eventually was a breakthrough for him to to begin to trust other people and, and to learn how to fit in.
1: That's interesting the and the coach had tried everything right he tried yelling, he tried love he demoted him to a lesser team Repromoting him i guess it was the right combination of 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 the men in the boat
2: yeah, it really was remarkable you know he would uh, his name was al and the coach and he would he would pull Joe out of the boat, and the boat would um, go faster for a day, but then the boat would go slower. He'd put Joe back in the boat. The boat would go faster for a day and then slow down again. And he was very, very frustrated because he could see Joe's you know, talent, but he couldn't really figure out how to, what was going on in his head. And he finally had the boat builder, George Pocock, um, talk to Joe, and Pocock had had some similar experiences to Joe. His mother had died when he was very young, and and Joe was able to—I mean, excuse me—George uh, Pocock was able to connect with Joe, and, and begin to talk to him about the importance of of trusting the other guys, and and that's really what made a difference. And then when when uh, the coach finally put Joe in the boat that ultimately went to Berlin. It's actually interesting, the log books that the coach kept are in the archives at the University of Washington, and I looked at those, and each day the coach entered all the different boats and what speeds they were making and which men were in each boat, and you can see the time differences. The day they put Joe in that last boat, that boat just took off, and the next day it got a little faster, and the next day it got faster, and the next day it got faster, and and within a week or so, it was routinely beating every other boat on the team. And, um, and it just all happened that day that, that finally they figured out which crew to put Joe on. Um, it's just very graphically illustrated in these uh, time charts in, in, in the rowing log.
0: If
1: you just joined us, we're talking with Daniel James Brown. His uh, bestseller, The Boys in the Boat, was selected for this year's USU Common Literature Experience for Incoming Students and the Community. Um, so I'd like to pause the Joe Rancis story here and, and talk about rowing. Um, this is, uh, you've said, maybe the most demanding uh, sport. Why is that? It
2: is it is extraordinarily demanding, and I had no idea when I got into this, um, just how physically, well, demanding on several levels, physically, emotionally, and also just on the level of skill. But physically, <laughs> um uh-huh. Particularly at the level we're talking about here, what you know, what became an Olympic crew, um, it is just absolutely brutal in terms of the physical requirements, the energy that um, a rower expends rowing a two thousand meter race. A coach once calculated is equivalent to the energy uh, basketball player plays, an NBA basketball player plays, or expends. Uh, in two NBA basketball games, but he does it all in about six minutes. Um, there's there's a level of fitness that is just, I think, unparalleled, in probably in any other sport. Partly because rowing, rowing involves uh, every muscle in the body, from the smallest muscles in your fingertips to the biggest muscles in your back and legs. Um, you, your entire body has to be fit and, and toned and developed and then there's an enormous aerobic uh, demand the, when you start rowing within the first uh, minute or so your body is going to become depleted of oxygen and you, you, you therefore have to start rowing with pain and through the pain because your body is going to hurt from that point forward and so it just takes a it's, it's an enormously demanding physically you have to, as I say, be willing to to put up with the, the physical pain. You have to have the aerobic capacity literally to survive it. Um, so it, I learned a lot about the uh, physiology of the sport and and also in meeting. Um, a lot of rowers, as I was doing the research, I was just absolutely staggered by um, by the demands of the sport.
1: I want to uh, read something uh, George Pocock uh, wrote. In fact, you, you uh, begin each chapter with a quotation, George Pocock, the uh, the craftsman, the boat builder, and, and something of a philosopher, right, of, of rowing. He, um, here's what he says. When you get the rhythm in an eight, it's pure pleasure to be in it. It's not hard work when the rhythm comes, that swing, as they call it. I've heard men shriek out with delight when that swing came in an eight. It's a thing they'll never forget as long as they live. Uh, tell me a bit about that.
2: And that's true. You know, in the in the several years since the books come out, I've met thousands of rowers. And, and um, they talk about this thing called swing, when everything in the boat is going right, when All eight blades are entering the water precisely at the same moment, and and every muscle in the body is attuned with every other muscle, I mean, in the boat. Um, And it becomes almost effortless at that point, but it's very rare. Even the best crews only find their swing occasionally. But when they find it, I've seen rowers many times grow misty-eyed talking about particular rows that they had or particular races they were in when their whole crew found the sling, and everything was going perfectly, and the boat just seemed almost to levitate up off of the water. And it, not, in, not in spite of the pain, but in beyond the pain, there was this pleasure uh, in what they were doing, that they never forget for the rest of their lives when it comes together that way. And as I say, there are there are rowers who row their whole lives and never never manage to get on a crew that really finds its swing. It is it's a rare thing, but it's the thing that all rowers uh, aspire to.
1: What what is it? To, to, I guess the right combination of. Men or women in the boat? What uh, what produces that?
2: Yeah, you know, I think that's, you, you put your finger exactly on it. There's a kind of alchemy in putting uh, together a great crew. And um, I, I remember asking the rowing coach here, the modern-day rowing coach at the University of Washington, a few years ago, what made for a great crew. And he said, well, I would never take the biggest man or woman in the boat and just clone that biggest, strongest rower and have eight identical rowers because... Um, a, good, a good crew is always a mixture of both physical types and psychological types. You need light people up in the front of the boat because uh, basically the way they row, they need to be light but technically proficient because any deviation in how the bow of the boat means. The whole boat's going to go that direction. Obviously, they need you need a big, strong, powerful men in or women in the middle of the boat. You need people in the last two seats who have a perfect sense of rhythm because everybody else in the boat is watching their oars and replicating their rhythm. And then you also need different personality types. You need somebody sort of a spark plug who will um, fire a crew up when they're down and and motivate everybody. Motivate everybody sometimes you need somebody that's just the opposite, that will calm everybody down. And and so the personalities all have to mesh and the physical types have to all mesh. And that's really what what Coach Albrookson at Washington was so good at in the nineteen thirties was this as I say, this sort of magic, this alchemy of mixing and matching uh, rowers until he found just the right combination. And that's that's when you get a crew that has the potential to, um, to find their swing and and to do the kinds of things that these guys wound up doing in a, in a series of races over uh, several years.
1: We'll take a break next, and I have you come back and tell that uh, extraordinary story. I want one more uh, George Pocock uh, quote here. This is the quote ahead of the uh, epilogue. It says, harmony, balance, and rhythm. They're the three things that can stay, that stay with you your whole life. Without them, civilization is out of whack. And that's why an oarsman, when he goes out in life, he can fight it. He can handle life. That's what he gets from rowing. That's uh, George Pocock stating, um, you know, something that uh, I think has become obvious. There's, there are obvious metaphors from rowing to life, right?
2: <laughs> Absolutely. And um, it's amazing um, the impact that Pocock and his sort of philosophy, and that's one of, of the best quotes, I think, um, had on these young men and also actually on generations of rowers at Washington. And, um, and you know, since all his quotes have appeared in this book, I, I hear back from readers all the time how much, in addition to the rest of the story, how much they get out of these little snippets of, of Pocock's philosophy that are scattered through the book.
1: Let's take another break. When we come back, we'll hear to have Daniel James Brown tell us a bit of this extraordinary story. These are, um, as uh, Daniel James Brown writes, these are the sons of loggers, uh, shipyard workers, and farmers. And they go up against the elite teams of the East Coast and Great Britain. And then finally, at the Olympics, 1936. We'll hear uh, at least part of that story uh, coming up. Daniel James Brown's book, The Boys in the Boat. More following this break.
0: UPR is supported by Stokes Nature Center Writers in the Woods, presented with a partnership with UPR and the Logan Library. A conversation with Pam Houston, author of Deep Creek, Thursday, September 16th at 7 o'clock. Information at logannature.org. Support also comes from Salt Lake City Weekly, a Utah news source since 1984, covering music, dining, nightlife, and more in Salt Lake City and beyond. Available weekly at 1,800 locations across the Wasatch Front or online at cityweekly.net. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in 2018.
1: Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We have Dan James brown with us. His bestseller, uh, The Boys in the Boat, is a story about beating the odds and finding hope in the most desperate of times. Uh, Working-class boys from the American West won the gold at the nineteen thirty six Olympics in Berlin in rowing. Um Dan James Brown, before we get into the extraordinary events leading up to nineteen thirty six and the the Olympics of thirty-six, it this is an extraordinary love story, isn't it? Uh, he Joe Rantz was compensated, <laughs> at least in part, for the for the difficulties being abandoned. Um and uh, Joyce, who became his wife, uh uh, made a vow, right, to herself that uh, Joe would never be abandoned again. He'd have a happy home life.
2: Exactly. Um, you know, in those years when Joe was abandoned, Joe had, had, had uh, met Joyce um, literally on the school bus in uh, middle school, and, um, and they were drawn together very quickly. Joe loved music, and, and she did too. And um, so they, they became an item very early on, um, but during those very hard years for Joe, when he was living alone in this half-built house out in the woods, um, she was the one, you know, constant in his life, and she saw the enormous pain that he experienced, you know, mental, psychological pain, and and, and seeing this and falling in love with him, growing close to him, she she decided early on that, um, that she was going to make sure, particularly after he proposed to her, that, um, that he was never going to be alone again, never be abandoned like that again. And um, Joyce was, Joyce was uh, she had passed away by the time I began this project, so I never got to meet her personally, but through Judy I got to know her pretty well and through some letters she had written and so forth. She was actually also a pretty remarkable uh, young woman. She was a farm girl um, growing up out in Squim, Washington, and um, she was very bright and preco- precociously bright. And she wound up going to uh, moving into Seattle and going to the University of Washington uh, when Joe did, uh, partly to be by his side, but also because she was just intellectually interested in all kinds of things philosophy and photography and just as wide smorgasbord of interests she had and um, and she wound up actually graduating from University of Washington Phi Beta Kappa outstanding student and um, and you know I, I have to believe that that made a huge difference in in Joe's life in the long run was that there was this one person that he could count on and and, and vice versa, and eventually, uh, Joe didn't want to get. They didn't want to get married till Joe had graduated. Uh, he graduated in nineteen thirty-seven. They got married the day of their graduation, um, and went on and, and raised a very happy uh, uh, family.
1: So, to tell us about the run-up to the Olympics. Uh, Coach Olbrichsen has assembled uh, what he thinks is a very promising team, right? Um, um, but they. They have to overcome uh, the elite teams of the of the East
2: Yeah, so um they were there was little respect given to um the rowing programs out here on the West Coast by the rowing programs on the east coast the The kids that rowed on the East Coast schools, particularly the Ivy League schools, they were these young men were the sons of uh, you know u s senators or titans of industry. Um, they were definitely upper crust kids. By any account, the kids that rowed for Washington, and to some extent that rowed for Cal Berkeley down in California, they were very different kinds of kids. They were mostly working class kids, particularly these guys from Washington State. They had grown up in mill towns and on farms, and um, they when they showed up the University of Washington, they they had no idea how to row. Most of the kids on the East Coast had learned to row in prep school. In fact, so. so right from the start, this crew began, um, first they had to beat their very good rivals at Cal, um, but then they went on, and they started over the course of three years to win more and more races against the East Coast schools. And uh, in the, the year leading up to the Summer Olympics in, in Berlin, um, they just blew away the competition in the East, First at a regatta in Poughkeepsie, New York, which they won in a staggering fashion, and then in the Olympic trials, which were held at Princeton, uh, they just again blew away the whole field. So they they triumphed over the rowing elite from the East Coast. Then they had to go up against when they got to uh, to Germany. They for the Olympic trials or the um, first heats in. The Olympics in Germany, they had to row against a team from Great Britain. And these were kids, again, who had grown up rowing. These were kids from Oxford and Cambridge, um, which is pretty much where the modern sport was invented. And they had a very tough uh, preliminary race against uh, the English kids, but they did win that race and, and went on to qualify. And then, of course, in the gold medal race, they had to go up against this um, basically uh, all uh, hand-picked Nazi crew uh, supported by the German state. And in the end, um, they triumphed over them as well. So in in a lot of ways, it's sort of a classic American underdog story. These guys were always um, fighting their way up to a higher level. Of you know power and prestige and and overcoming it and that's really that's really a quote really what is so remarkable about them as a team was where they started and then where they wound up.
1: They did see themselves as underdogs, right? And they they made this great achievement. And in fact, you write that um, that Joe Rantz always, I guess, secretly. Felt that he was the weak link, and then he found out years later the the other boys in the boat all, all individually thought they were the weak link.
2: Yeah, it was cute. I mean, I was reading these diaries and letters these guys had left behind, and at various points, almost all of them, you know, the thing that all of them kept saying was, oh, "I really, I really hope we can win this." You know, you know, this race in Germany, it would be so great to come back to Seattle with gold medals, but I just hope I don't let the other guys down. And when you read these letters and diaries, you realize almost all of them thought he was the guy that was going to let everybody else down. Um, they, they really, really um, didn't want to disappoint one another. And, and yes, yeah, so I think each of them secretly worried about being the one that, that wouldn't Um, wouldn't do the right thing.
1: You have said that this is uh, one of the great rowing teams of all time. Why is that?
2: It is. Um, I think it's a combination of um, the story we were just talking about, who they were and where they came from and where they wound up. I'm going all the way to the gold medal podium in in Berlin. Um, But they were also great in another particular sense in the rowing world, which is that they were great um, at very under lots of different circumstances, and particularly in terms of distance. In those days, the big race in the United States was the Poughkeepsie Regatta in Poughkeepsie, New York. It was a four-mile race on the Hudson River. Four miles is a long way to row. Um, and they won that race in absolutely smashing fashion. And just a couple weeks later, they had to go to Princeton and win just a 2,000-meter race, which is an entirely different sort of thing. It's basically a sprint from the moment you the, make the first pull till you cross the finish line. It's an all-out sprint. And, and so rowing a 2,000-meter race is a completely different sort of thing than rowing a four-mile race. They were a crew that could do both and consistently did both. Um, and, and, and would win at varying lengths. And and I think that is something we you don't actually see these days because these days, uh, rowing competitions are almost always just uh, 2,000 meters. And you, so you don't have these long, four-mile, grueling endurance things that you used to have. And I think that's part of what makes them, you know, pretty legendary in the rowing world. Mm-hmm.
1: One of the things you highlight uh, in the book, uh, and, uh, you, and you've said that this was kind of a surprise to you, we know that the Nazis used the 1936 Olympics as a propaganda tool, but you, you have said that uh, you were surprised how much. That, that it, was, it was really an all-out and, and uh, I guess, quite successful uh, venture in terms of propaganda.
2: Yeah, actually, um, the reality is, is that most Americans who went to Berlin that summer and uh, spent time in berlin and going to the games came back very favorably impressed by what they called the new germany at the time this was germany under the nazi party um, you know they were the city was clean it was efficient um, everybody was smiling and all this was covering up a very dark reality uh, dachau was being constructed that summer just uh, some miles north of berlin and um, or actually i don't know what direction outside of berlin Um, there was a very different Germany that was unfolding while this showcase was being put on in Berlin. And um, they had a very, very elaborate propaganda effort that went into portraying Germany as having nothing but peaceful intentions, when in fact they were... Um, building an enormous war machine, and I had always known that. I think a lot of Americans realized that that game was used, you know, for propaganda purposes. But going into the book and before I did all the research, I, you know, I, I, we all we all know about the later history of Germany, the war, and the Holocaust. Um, I didn't know much about Germany during the mid-1930s, and I didn't realize how systematically and how cynically they had manipulated world opinion and, and concealed what they were really doing. So for me, doing the research was, was really eye-opening and um, and moving, and um, I actually got became so interested in it that I wrote about 80 pages more than is than mm-hmm. in the book. Um, my editor wisely took a great deal of that out because it was getting in the way of the storytelling. Yeah, but it was very a very very interesting time in history, and the propaganda you know aspects of of the story are are a very important part of what was going on.
1: And of course, this is this has this has effects. If you have a successful propaganda, you can. You can blind people to what's actually happening. I, I was just reading uh, the other day again about uh, Charles Lindbergh, who had lived in Germany for a while. He came back and was became involved in the America First movement. And uh, uh, yep. his point was, "Hey, what I've seen in Germany is uh, they're 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 doing good things."
2: Yep, that and that was not an uncommon uh, view in the mid nineteen thirties. Um, there were there was that America First movement. Um, there was an active Nazi party in the United States. There was. Uh, there was a lot going on, um, and you know, to be fair, nobody I suppose uh, really knew yet. Or I shouldn't say nobody, because there were people in the Jewish community in New York who, who did know what was starting to happen, and their voices were pretty much drowned out.
1: We just have about three minutes left. I want to um, talk about after After Effects, the you know life after this extraordinary these extraordinary events. Um, it's, it's, by large, the, the boys in the boat uh, went on to be successful, uh, quite successful. Many of them got into engineering. Uh, that's a, a common theme there, um, and they were to to a man very humble about their accomplishments.
2: Yeah, you, you know, when I talk about the different virtues that these guys had and what I think made them successful as as a crew and as men, one of the virtues I talk about is their humility. Um, I mean, these guys were big, strong, healthy guys. With you know, it, you have to have a pretty healthy ego to to think you're going to win an Olympic gold medal in rowing of all things. But they also had a measure of humility. Um, the sport is so painful and it's so difficult, and they went through so many challenges, that over that time when they were coming together, they learned that um, they learned they needed one another. And I think that that humility and the humility with which they approached one another and approached the sport and approached what they were trying to do, really, for one thing, it was sort of the gateway through which they were able to build trust among themselves and and become as bonded together as they were. Um, and I think it's one of the keys to, to their success and one of the things that, that uh, in some ways typifies their generation also. When I think about my father and my uncles and my aunts from that generation, they tended to have a kind of civility and a kind of humility that, <laughs> that I think we don't see as much uh, these days. And so I think, in in that way, these guys were great representatives of the, of their
1: generation. You say they they did get together often. Uh, many of them ended up or, or stayed in the Seattle area, and they would get together, whatever ten year reunions, uh, on which occasions they'd go out in the boat, um, and be photographed and 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 such. What what we talked about this a little bit earlier in the hour, but I it's it's I think a very important part of the story. Uh, what formed that special bond?
2: yeah you know I think it was um i think it was just forged back there in those those three years and particularly the year of nineteen thirty six when they when they came so close when they did this very audacious thing you know when these kids from, these farm kids basically from Washington wound up in New York City getting on an ocean wire going to berlin, and then you know being in Europe, this was like most of them had never been outside the Seattle area or outside of Washington State. This was eye-popping stuff for them. So it was a hugely big deal in their lives. And they never forgot it. I mean, and they never forgot the, um, the power of, of the friendship that they had built for one another. Bob Mock, who was the coxswain, His daughter told me that, I mean, Bob had a great wife. He became a lawyer, very smart guy. But I remember his daughter telling me that her dad spent the rest of his life trying to find something as meaningful and impactful uh, to him as that Olympic experience had been. And although he did many interesting and fine things, he never found anything that was as... Um, important to him as what he'd been through with those guys hmm. back in nineteen thirty
1: six just a minute left uh, what's your biggest takeaway personally?
2: You know I think it is that um, by getting to know these guys through their families and through talking to those who were still alive and becoming so immersed in the story i've just um, I've tried to deliberately and also, subconsciously, I think uh, embody some of the virtues that I thought, I think that they did. You know, I look at their perseverance. I looked at the earnestness with which they approached their task. I looked at the humility with which they approached their t- task. Um, and I try to incorporate some of those virtues into my into my own life. They, there's a lot of life lessons in in the story and i i know i hear from readers all the time about how those life lessons have come to play in their lives and I, I would say the same things happen to me um i'm a reader of this story too and i um i think it has changed a lot of things about me and i, I hope for the better
1: well, the uh, extraordinary story. Um, the Boys in the Boat was selected for this year's USU Common Literature Experience for incoming students in the community. Daniel James Brown, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: And thanks for listening to Access Utah.
3: It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. Living in the desert means dealing with extreme conditions. Sometimes that means drought, but other times the problem is too much water all at once. This week, learn how Utahns in Manti looked upstream to tackle the problem of flooding. First this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T.D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. When you live in the desert, periodic floods come with the territory. But as Utahns learned around the turn of the 20th century, what we do in the hills has a big impact in the valley. In 1890, residents in Manti had begun to connect the worsening of floods to the overgrazing of their livestock in Manti Canyon. Overgrazed hills become more susceptible to erosion and less able to absorb rain and runoff. In 1900, mayoral candidate L.R. Anderson won his election by running on a no-more-floods platform. Then as mayor, Anderson successfully petitioned President Theodore Roosevelt to designate Manti Canyon as a national forest, leading Manti residents to limit their grazing. Their collective efforts paid off in 1909, when floods hit adjacent canyons while Manti Canyon went unaffected. Some of the towns along the Wasatch Front were slower to learn the lessons of watershed management. In Logan and Cache Valleys, residents had harvested much of the mature timber, in addition to using those hills to graze large herds of sheep. Flood waters ran rapidly down the denuded hills, easily overwhelming the dams and channels that the towns had built to try to control them. Meanwhile, their timber and grazing practices continued to damage watersheds. And cultural attitudes and the economic benefits from unchecked grazing and logging made some Utahns reluctant to adopt more stringent watershed management practices. But in 1930, disastrous flooding hit Davis County. Utah State University professors and experts studied the floods and found that watershed conditions adversely affected by overgrazing and timber cutting was a major factor in these events. In 1934, the US Congress passed the Taylor Grazing Act, establishing oversight over federal lands. By this time, Utahns had largely accepted the connection between flooding and watershed conditions. Officials began to reduce the number of cattle and sheep dramatically. And in this manner, they mitigated their floods. Cities along the Wasatch finally learned what Mantai had known for decades. Find sources and past episodes of the Beehive Archive at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities,
0: I'm Megan Weiss. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from USU Center for Entrepreneurship, presenting the Intermountain Growth Summit for Enterprises, September 30th and October 1st featuring a documentary in the Taggart Student Center on Thursday and instructions from business leaders Friday, October 1st. Registration info at growingutah.org. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.